0: my great pleasure to announce where we're going, if you haven't figured it out yet. So, I know that is, uh, we're going to Miami, is it up there? Yes, there it is. Looks like the Miami Dolphins covers, right? All right. Well, I, I, we were calling it, uh, as I was praying and waiting on the Lord for November, it'd be probably about November 4th to the 8th, I think it'd be our normal Thursday to Monday, and I know that it's, it seems like to many people, it seems like it's very far away, but it's not, and it's, it's every six months we're, we're going on a mission somewhere together, and that started the, because of covid uh, it started a new trend. We were supposed to go to Germany and remind you, I want to remind you, we were going to take 160 to Germany. That's how many people actually signed up, put in money. And then, of course, COVID happened and then we had to figure out something. COVID doesn't mean that we don't go on mission, it just means we have to figure something else out. And so, what we did was we just said, All right, Lord, where are we going? And we found a, a city uh, in the United States that was uh, very, very diverse. Uh, and multicultural, and that was Detroit, Michigan, where we reached the Muslims there, went door to door, in snow flurries, and uh, knocked on every door. I ate really good Mediterranean food. It was wonderful. And then right there, I, I, I believe we, it was probably like, what, a few days in, we just said, all right, this is where we're going next, and we uh, had decided to uh, go to Washington, D.C., and that was, what drove that was the, we need to pour into the the, uh, the next generation uh, of, of people coming into our church. So there's always a discipleship element of where we go, but also we need to pour into our nation's capital uh, because we could see uh, for the first time there was a new religion that was introduced. It was critical race theory. And so uh, our CRT, as some of you guys know it as, but that was so important that if you guys have to understand that that is a new religion. And it is actually hurting the church because a lot of people are buying into it. Uh, We're not, but many other people are. And we've been teaching that as early as we could. I mean, I remember feeling something uncomfortable back May. It was like a year ago. Something was really uncomfortable. There were people in our church that were buying into this. They're no longer here. But they were buying into that ideology. And they were very much causing a lot of problems for our church. Um, and, and we had to, uh, we, were pre- we didn't have the language. We didn't understand what that was. All it was was just this idea that we weren't loving enough. Uh, we were not loving mul- uh, people of different colors or different race. Why? Because they continually heard that from the news. This is coming from some sort of Marxist theology or ideology. It was very dangerous, and it still is very dangerous in the church. And we deal with it the same way as the Islamic religion or Buddhism or any other religion on the face of the planet. We we don't don't just deal with it lightly. Uh, It says in the scriptures, I've been reading Deuteronomy, it says, purge yourself of all evil. Including ideologies that will are damning now, with all that, I just <laughs> I think that is important to just remind you over and over again that this thing is is in the church it 's the Trojan horse of today. It comes in, it looks sweet, looks nice, but we 've never had a race, racial problem in this church. Look at it You're, I, 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 We just went to washington d c and they asked us again, like, how are you guys so diverse? Because people ask me, even in our own movement, pe- pastors ask all the time, over and over again, they ask, how do you become diverse? And they're trying to figure out, should we, we need more diversity in our children? So we need like maybe a black pastor. Or we need some more diversity here. We need this, we need that, we need... What are you playing, chess? I, what, what, I, that seems ridiculous. Why don't we just love Jesus... Why don't we preach his word? Why don't we love all people and see what happens? And so when you take, right? Sounds refreshing. Uh, and so the reason why this has to do with Miami, I'll get there. Um, but, <laughs> but I think it's important that we, so we did something about it. You know, I, we, we, We said, okay, there's a problem in Detroit. Nobody wants to live there. The the, uh, houses are being abandoned. So we go. That's the church. That's the kind of church we are. We don't, we want to go to places that everybody's fleeing from. uh, Because they, they're most, most people look at it from uh, the eyes of a utopia. I want the perfect house. I want the perfect city. I want the perfect this. Now we live in a really nice place. Oviedo is fairly nice. But We've, I've always felt when we planted the church that we are a hub and we want to uh, pour into our church discipleship-wise. We have uh, lots of money flowing in. Uh, and we do because we're, we have a very generous church and we want to use those funds and we want to use the, the gifting, the talent, the, 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 the blessing in this city and to export that all around the world. When the borders are closed, does not mean missions is closed. It just means we got to find another route. And God always has that for those who are hungry, those who are obedient. And he's been so faithful to us that we're not scared of the Muslim world. We're not scared of the political world in DC. We're not scared of these places. We walk right into them with boldness, with courage. Isn't that great? I mean, I, don't you love your church? I mean, it's incredible. I, do you wake up thanking God for this place? It's very unique. Uh, it should not be taken advantage of. So what we thought about is we, we know we've, we've taken somewhat of an informal survey, so to speak, and we've been asking people, and, it's you know, D.C. was probably the most exhausting trip we've had in a long time, probably more exhausting than Sweden, right, and some of these other places, we were, I mean, we were up and ready, and we're going, and we got the Antioch plague to deal with that at the same time. It was just crazy. And so, you know, as I was praying through November, uh, we were thinking about the Pacific Northwest. We were thinking about Seattle and Portland. We are thinking about places, again, where people are fleeing. They're leaving, um, and they're coming here to Florida or to Texas or uh, the South, Tennessee, they're flooding They're f- with people leaving New York and a lot of these liberal states. So they're all coming here. And so we're thinking, okay, where do we go? We want to go somewhere where we can be of use. You know, we don't want to, we're not afraid. And so uh, the Lord had highlighted those places and we're thinking, okay, so how does that work? But then I just never felt peace about it. Our team didn't feel peace about that. Maybe it's too soon. Maybe we'll go sometime in May or June of next year. And uh, when the weather's better, the weather, and some of you guys would like this, but in November, it's pretty bad in the Pacific Northwest. And plus it's about a six-hour flight. And we we know a church there, a Russian church uh, in the Portland area. um, It's a great church. And um, we want to help our, our churches out and encourage them. And I think a church like this, coming from Florida, the opposite end of the country, they would be so encouraged. But what I really felt like what God was highlighting this time was discipleship. Now, of course, we're going to reach out in Miami, but we've, I don't know, this phrase came to mind, family reunion. We've been going to Miami for the first five years of our church. We've built a lot of great relationships, Not a lot of them with your families, actually, with your parents. We know a lot of people in South Florida. And so we, we're thinking, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll name some of these, these parks and these places, but Key Biscayne, Little Havana, we spent a lot of time there, uh, Little Haiti, uh, Jose Marti Park, you guys remember that? Um, that was just so much fun. I love Miami, uh, and I, I just, I, I don't know why, I just I, in my mind's eye, I just saw us just leaving our hotel, walking distance, or Max, take a van for 10 minutes, okay? No, we don't need trip, And to actually not stay at the Forum in Fort Lauderdale, but to actually stay in Miami. Like in Miami. Like actually have Miami and then have an address uh, that's associated with your hotel. But, because <laughs> we were like Miami, but you're staying in what it was Pompano Beach, I think it was. So, but anyways, I love our state. I love Florida. Um, I, I love where we live. I, I want to pour into it because here's the thing. We don't want to just become conservative. We want to be Christian. It's, it's not just, hey, look, like, I'm excited for what God's doing in Florida. I'm excited for Governor DeSantis. He's an amazing man of God. We want to support our state. We love our state. But understand, the, the, the goal is not to have a utopia. The goal is to evangelize the world. That's who we are. And so I think, I mean, just... You, because it it does something to you. You just, you almost become satisfied. Oh, we're good. We're in a great state. Everybody wants to come here. Don't think that way. People need Jesus. They need him. But I couldn't get out of my mind's eye. And when I say this, it's going to be like, well, that's not a mission trip, but just us going outside our hotel after breakfast and throwing the Frisbee around for about five minutes, 10 minutes, maybe 15 But but just being able to, you know, you can drive down there. I mean, I'm sure there'll be some weekenders like always uh, that make the administration fun. Um, But I, I really felt like a laid back reconnect time, intentional discipleship, because that's usually what happens on these trips. And I know that that was very difficult in Washington, D.C., so it's almost like I feel like what God is saying with this is that we need to be missional. The tip of the spear has always got to be the mission. That's why we're going. And it, evangelism is always a catalyst for discipleship. But we, we need to go, we, we, we need this as a church. We need to re-up in discipleship. And we need a catalyst for that in the days ahead. For, for us to go together to, you remember how Tampa was? It'll be a long extended Tampa in that, in that sense. But we, some say, well, why do, can't we just do that here? Because everybody, we could never, I mean, we did it once and it was okay uh, in Orlando. We didn't awaken Orlando. And that's because we, we wanted to be, to be a less of a burden while we're taking 100 people to Sweden. That was mainly the reason. But we always could outreach here in Orlando. We do it weekly. We do it daily. I mean, you guys are always sharing testimonies. It's incredible what this church does on a weekly basis. But we do need a catalytic time together because there's so many transitions happening in our church, from people entering into college, from college students becoming young adults, and young adults moving into uh, families or couples or being married, and then babies are coming. And just so many transitions are happening. And that we do need moms and dads, fathers and mothers. We need the generations to be together. And Sunday service is wonderful, but we need times together where we just say, because I know the questions are going to flood in, but, oh, does Miami need? You know, everyone is opinionated these days. And that's okay. You'll eventually get yours. Uh, I've always wanted to go to Italy, but I've never pressed Italy on the agenda as far as, like, needing to go there overseas but, I mean, the Lord blessed us going to Naples uh, not that long ago. And I, this fall, we're scheduled due into Venice, Italy, this, this fall for a meeting. A, a meeting. I didn't say vacation, I said a meeting, okay? But uh, we have been thinking about if Japan opens up and if Europe opens up, then we'll, we'll, we're going to stay, we're going to keep. Stay, we're going to stay tuned as much as we can, uh, but we're probably not going to be scheduled for an international trip until 2023. And so it's it's just a it's frustrating, but um, at the same time we just this is what the Lord has for us, and I, we want to make good decisions. So continue to pray for us as a leadership team. Um, we're open. I mean, we want we want feedback in that, uh, but we're we're looking at Miami in November. And like I said, we'll maybe take a longer trip uh, because it will feel like an overseas trip. It's about a six-hour flight to Seattle or Portland. And so if that's the case, we're just praying through that for June or end of May, beginning of June. Uh, We'll wait a little bit longer, uh, which means that we're kind of in this sort of format every six months. And we got to break that format at some point to get overseas. Uh, to build enough on ramp and enough momentum to get that money in uh, to go overseas, and we are thinking uh, Italia uh, is 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 one of those places. We have some contacts over there, and then all, that work with refugees in Sicily, and then also some other places. But I know I keep giving you a bunch of different countries because that's just who we are, right? We get excited about the nations. Look at the walls in the back. So. That's just who we are. If you think, oh, we're scattered all over the place, we are. Um, but that's the exciting thing about being a part of a missional church. So you got to deal with that, right? That's not a bad thing. Okay, Acts 18, here we go. I, I want to just say, uh, to give you guys a little bit of introduction, um, this is going to be a little bit more theological, this is the, I, and the reason is, this is, a, this is important. This is the last of the transitions you see. We saw the first transition happen with uh, the Jews who were, uh, today is Pentecost Sunday, actually, just so happens to be. Um, and so I've, I don't know if you remember this, when we started this back in August of last year, uh, we started off with Pentecost. And we started off with the first transition where the Jews became Christians and they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then we moved into Acts 10 and 11, which was in Tampa, if you remember that. That was the second, uh, I'm sorry, no, yeah, that was true. The second transition was Acts 8 with the Samaritans. The third one was when we're in Tampa with Acts 10 and 11 with the Gentiles. And then this one with the Old Testament saints in Acts 19. So this is going to have a little bit of a theological Uh, bent to it, but it's very important for all of us to understand so that we can be together in this. Um, But I want to, the the title of the message is Three Characteristics God Blesses. And that last one, we'll talk about transition. But the first one, uh, we'll look at three different profiles. Number one, Paul. Number two will be Apollos. And number three, the Old Testament saints. You following? All right. And then I have my Miami T-shirt on or sweatshirt, just so that you can be reminded every time you look at me. Have I ever gone? Anyways, my nerdy side coming out, I suppose. But all right, let's read. All right, so uh, verse 18, chapter 18. Paul, having remained many days, which is in Corinth, uh, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Centria, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, which is normally what Paul does in every city. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them, saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He sent sail from Ephesus and left. Now, a lot of people think, okay, well, what happened? Why did he leave Ephesus He had a commitment, and that was a Nazarite vow. Now, that might seem like, why is Paul, being who is a New Testament Christian, why is he still following some Old Testament uh, laws, so to speak, or the Jewish laws? Now, Paul loved the Jews. That is something for today, as Jews are now being persecuted, even more so on the streets of America than Uh, And and writing horrendous things like in the news, you've probably seen that Hitler was right uh, in killing the Jews. People are saying this. uh, The lovely liberals of today are saying these kinds of things. Who are mostly the ones who are with the the, the leading, the leaders of uh, against racism are the ones who are being the most racist uh, against our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. And then verse 22, when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successively, successfully through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so I, I, wanna, I wanna break down um, Paul's zeal. So the first characteristics, characteristic that God blesses is zeal, or even as it relates to thankfulness. Because there's always something behind zeal, right? Uh, People can be zealous for all sorts of things. But to be zealous for the right things is what God blesses. And so Paul had been a strict Jew for quite some time, even after he was a Christian. And you could see that zeal for the Lord, that hunger for him, that desire for him, the desire for the law, holiness, those things. Galatians one thirteen and 14 says this, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He was a zealous man. What he needed was the right knowledge, the knowledge of Jesus Christ to make him the more, one of the more powerful Christians who ever lived. Philippians 3, 5, and 6 says, he was circumcised on the eighth day, a nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church as to righteousness, which is in the law, and found blameless. But he also knew that none of this stuff actually saved him. Philippians 3, 7 and 9 says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He knew that none of those things would save him, although he was still zealous for his uh, background, his, his, his Jewish roots, which were good, by the way. But he understood that, that nothing, none of those things could actually save him. Save him, but he was still passionate for the things of God. And Paul loved the law, and he was very heavily influenced by Jewish culture. Understand that a lot of these messages have implications, not always application. I want to remind you again that I can't always break it down to where you are in your life, but it's a big picture. It's a big view of God, the love for the Jews. It's the it's a love for the Jewish heritage. You know understand that I'm reading through the Old Testament again. I have a few classes that I'm taking next semester, and so I'm getting a head start. And I'm reading through the the Old Testament, and it's just, again, so refreshing reading the law again. And just seeing the the God. a lot of it doesn't make sense to you, right? I mean, all these laws, and they they shouldn't really make sense, unless you're a Jewish, a Jewish background. They're very foreign to us. But understand, God had a purpose to it. What was the purpose? It was to set a nation apart, to look different than the pagans around them, right? Our culture is trying to deconstruct everything. To take literally, I'm waiting for the day that they take the 4th of July out of the way. They're already trying to do that in some states. As if that's bad. Even though America was very rebellious, I mean, we started that way. I mean, technically. But to relate that to the Jewish, Paul understood that these laws were good. That that they were meant to separate. We know, guys, we are supposed to look different than the world. That was the purpose of these laws. They had their own feasts. They had their own. Fam- they were the people could could consider themselves very racist in that sense, but they were not. They were very much to themselves, and they cared for the foreigner. I mean, God, when you see God's law, it's like, man, he, he, no one could come up with this, but God. He's just so perfect. You read through, you're like, man, that's harsh, but oh, but he's righteous. And holy, I mean, you're reading the Old Testament and you're falling in love with God even more because that's his nature. I'm a New Testament guy, hands down. You guys know that. I love the New Testament. But the Old Testament shows you the character of God and his holiness and his love to keep us separate from the world. And that's a wonderful thing to say, hey, I mean, we don't need to go kosher or, you know, is that kosher, you know? Some people like all that stuff because, and in, in, in really, th- what, happened in, what happened in the 400 years in the intertestamental period, and then what happened in the Testament? What happened, you saw the law being taken advantage of. They added traditions on top of the law. We can be legalistic pretty quickly, can't we? This doesn't, I, I know people, in fact, just the other day, uh, a family member was telling me about somebody that they know uh, was, now getting caught up in like legalism and they're, they, can't, they can't celebrate this day anymore. They can't do that, And it's like God abolished a lot of that in the New Testament era, but he kept the moral law and the idea that he wants a people separate from the world. In other words, you can't have CRT and Christianity. It's impossible. You can't have your cake and eat it too. It doesn't work that way. That whole denial of self, pick up your cross, means I'm going his way and his way only. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he says in Romans 7, 12 through 14, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Guys, why this is important? Because one day someone will tell you and confront you in fact, Hillsong, the, the, uh, the, the leader of Hillsong got on TV the other day and he was just basically saying it was a sad story. He could He was beating around the bush when someone asked him point blank about gays, about homosexuality. I mean, he was trying to bounce all around so he didn't look bad on TV. What are you going to do? Don't judge somebody else. What are you doing? Are you going to be that guy that just bounces? And some of it will be a little bit more costly than others. You might lose a job. But understand when someone says, you know, but isn't God's law, I mean, isn't it somewhat outdated? You might even find some Christians say like, you know, I, there's, there's a, what's the difference between a Nazarite vow, and we don't really do that anymore, and a difference between that and, you know, God being against homosexuality. I mean, what is the difference between that? You got to know how to answer that. Because you can, oh man, that's a good question. I don't really know. Maybe, you know, maybe, and you know, deep down, way deep down, you know, the law, you know, the law is good. You know, the scriptures, but you, for the sake of being relevant to the culture, you might compromise. But when he says the law is good, he is referring to, he's referring to the whole law. But today for us, that's referring to the moral law. And that does include some of the more controversial things that we find today. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. In other words, what it's, it's the sin that it's the law that exposes my sin. It exposes it. It's like taking a glass, a clear glass and having all the dirt at the bottom. And then you're like, oh, everything looks good. And then all of a sudden, I take this, uh, the spoon and I start stirring it up and all the elements, and it clouds the glass. The spoon is the law. My sin is the, is the dirt hanging at the bottom. But everything looks nice until the law came in. Why is it important for us to preach the whole of Scripture? Because there are people sitting in churches all day long who think they're fine. Until this, the good old fashioned silver spoon gets in there. Starts messing up things. May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, the law, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now, a lot of you guys, have you ever made a vow to the Lord? Like, hey, I will go to church every Sunday if you get me a girlfriend. <laughs> Is that working for you? <laughs> Sorry if it's not. Uh, perseverance. But but, <laughs> but you do that. I mean, look, we all have done this. We've all said, hey, all right. I, I, if, if, if you do this, if I do this, then you do this, God. Well, I mean, that's sort of what an Nazarite vow is, to some degree. It's just a vow that you're taking for the Lord. But the New Testament understanding of that is out of a place of thankfulness. I'm vowing to the Lord. It's the other way around. When God does this, oh, I am even more committed to His cause and His purposes. You see, you see what I'm saying? That is so important. We'll get to that in a second. I have a good quote. But numbers, I just want to break down what, uh, at least bring you to the Old Testament to understand a little bit what a Nazarite vow is and to show you how Paul is zealous and that is a wonderful quality that we must all have. Number six, two to five says, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He sh- and uh, excuse me, and then sh- uh, he shall drink no vinegar whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days, it's kind of like a Daniel fast in some degree, but all the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds of even to the skin. All the days of the vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head and he shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. And he shall let the locks of his hair let his head grow long. I can't do, a, a obviously, a Nazarite vow. I'm sorry. I wish I could, but uh, I'm exempt from that. Um, <laughs> okay, and some of us are, too. But, or they took a Nazarite vow and it just never growed back, and that was just, <laughs> praise the Lord. But, Number six, 13 to 21, now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall bring the offering to the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall present his offering to the Lord. One male lamb a year old without defect for burnt offering and one ewe lamb a year old without defect for sin offering and the ram without defect for the peace offering and a basket of unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil. An unleavened wafer spread with oil along with their grain offering and drink offering. They went through all this trouble because they loved the Lord. There was a zeal there. There was, I'm so thankful. Now, what is Paul referring to? What is his thankfulness? Now look at verse 10. It says, it says Jesus spoke to him. Remember when he was very much discouraged from last week? He was discouraged from continuing in ministry. And Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. And I have many people in this city. And he was there for a year and a half. God was faithful to his word. He said, I'm doing the Nazarite vow. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. You know, Nicole and I, we talked about different times where we go on a, a Daniel fast. And sometimes, you know, the, the Daniel fast just means you, you just eat uh, fruits and veggies and, and whole grains and things like that. Just no meat, dairy, etc. But sugars, those things. But there, we don't use, we don't go into that to manipulate God to do what we want. Sometimes we do that. We're like, okay, well, we're doing this. We're doing all these things. And they're kind of ritualistic in some sense because we want to manipulate God into answering our prayer. We're believing for something. We're contending for something. That's not necessarily what that, this Nazarite was for. This Nazarite. It was out of a place of thankfulness. And then the priest shall present them before the Lord and shall offer a sin offering and burnt offering. He shall offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord together with a basket of unleavened cakes. The priest shall likewise offer... It's grain offering and drink offering. The Nazarite shall then shave his dedicated head of hair at the doorway of the tent meeting and take the dedicated hair of his head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall take the ram's shoulder when it has been boiled and one unleavened cake out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his dedicated hair. Then the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. It's it is holy for the priest together with the breast offered by waving and the thigh offered by, uh, by lifting it up and afterward the Nazarite may drink wine. That's a lot. The purpose is to show you the dedication of Paul. In fact, you remember how Paul is like, I am compelled by Christ to go and preach the gospel. What did he do here? They asked him to stay. And he didn't. Why? Because he needed to get to Jerusalem to fulfill that vow. He was so thankful for what God had accomplished. And there's a couple of things here. He had already, I mean, they were completely fine without Paul being there. They had so many different leaders. Um, in fact, Gaius, Ostenes, Stephanus, Crispus, They had all been, in a year and a half, Paul was quick to develop leaders. He could leave, fine, and go to Jerusalem to fulfill his vow. But understand, there is a faithfulness that we as a church need. There's a a dedication, there is a zeal of the Lord saying, I want to fulfill this. If you got, do not promise God something that you cannot fulfill. That is very dangerous. In fact, the scriptures consider it very foolish. Listen to what one commentator says he says, When you make a vow to the to the Lord, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it, according to Ecclesiastes five. Scripture teaches that many of the vows that people made were bargaining actions with God in the Old Testament. You guys know those, some of those stories. The worshiper asked God for a favor, and if God requested, granted the request, he would receive the worshiper's gift. At Bethel, J- Jacob, for example, at Bethel, Jacob asked God for a protective care and pledged a tenth of his possessions if God would answer his prayer. Then Hannah pleaded for a son whom she would dedicate to the Lord if God granted her request. Maybe some of us are like, oh, if you just give me a kid, they'll be yours, Lord. Or, you know, we do these kinds of things. And what God is saying is we don't need to live like this as Christians, New Testament Christians. But the vow, we can, we can make vows, but out of a place of worship and thankfulness. Because that's where the power comes from. That's where the strength actually comes from. It says, however, we ought to refrain from making a vow to God on the condition that he grants us our request. If God honors our petition, but we find that we are unable or unwilling to fulfill our obligation, we are but fools in his presence. Rather, we should render to him our vows of thanksgiving, praise and service for the gift of salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. As it relates to Romans 12, let our whole bodies be a living sacrifice. Out of a place. So, in other words, we're gonna we want to we want to honor the Lord with our bodies. We're so thankful what God did this year. I mean, from January to May, what a wonderful year! It's been hard, but it's been good. It's been rich, lots of fruit. Lord, I want to enter into uh, uh, I want to deprave my. I want to get into a regimen. I want to you know get up at six. I want to go to bed at nine thirty or ten o'clock. I want to I want to eat healthier. I want to get on our exercise routine. Those things are sometimes, vow, they could be vows. So Though I want to get back into, I want to use my body, my whole body, my physical body as an act of sacrifice, not to earn something from you, but out of a place of thankfulness. I'm free. There's no obligation. There's no, if I get out, if I step out of it, okay, he's not going to strike me dead. But, but the, the, the point is, is that Paul is so thankful that he restricted himself to this vow. And I want you to see the character of Paul here. It's incredible. We need to live like this. And, but not out of a, some sort of religious thing or to, of a place to prove to your friends and how holy you are and how pious you are. That's not right. William Barclay said this about uh, Paul. We don't understand how zealous and how faithful and determined Paul really was as a human being. We have to look at the details of scripture. It says we may see clearly how here how much we do not know about the apostle Paul. Acts 18 to 19 describe a journey of no less than 1500 miles if you add all this up. And it was dismissed with barely a reference. That's why you got to know your scriptures, where the maps and all everything, you know, how you piece it all together, understand they didn't have trains or planes, or cars, with barely a reference. There are untold tales of heroism of Paul, which we'll never know. And I want to just give you a few quotes here about being zealous, because it is important that as men and women, that we are zealous people for the Lord, with knowledge. Zeal without knowledge is foolishness. But Horatius Bonar says, A believing man will be a zealous man. Faith makes a man zealous. Faith shows itself by zeal, not by a zeal for a party or a system or an opinion, but by a zeal for Christ, a zeal for his church, a zeal for carrying his work on earth. What did Jesus do when he walked into the temple and he saw people taking advantage of people? They just wanted to come and meet with God, but those people, they, those thieves, they would not allow it to happen. They were overcharging for the exchange and they were, they were putting a heavy burden on the people. What did he do? It took time for him to actually make a whip and he literally destroyed that place. It was zeal for his house consumed him. He wanted the purity of the church. Remember what I said about, uh, in DC about uh, Athens, about Paul being provoked? you guys need to be provoked by the right things. If you're provoked by someone cutting you off or wronging you, that's different. That's your offense. You're offended and you want to get right. You're like, well, there's evil in the world. (laughs) Right? Don't generalize evil in the world by one guy who made you mad. But we do need to be provoked by injustice and evil in the world. And we need a place to talk about it. Sometimes we're so afraid to talk Have you ever been in a context with certain Christians? And you're just, you're just talking about things that are provoking you. Have you ever just been provoked and just, I mean, a righteous like, oh, this is so and you're talking, everyone's like, oh, just sunshine and rainbows, just they they kind of blow it off, and oh, it's okay. And you're like, man, uh, What in the world? Are they not seeing the same thing? Or are they just trying to be overly hopeful? Or you can be honest about what's going on and always land on hope. That is a cultural piece. Amen? We could be honest about the fact that Jews in LA and New York, they're, they're getting hit bad right now, really bad. That's not okay. It's not okay when anybody gets hit like that. Whatever. I mean, you can't be the, the leaders of social justice and pick one. That's stupid. If there's one thing that I was telling Nicole on our break here. We went to Maine. I'm like over a lobster dinner. You know what really makes me mad is stupidity. That's what really gets me going. Does that get you going? you really want to get me going? Be stupid. But that's what this, if we're honest, that's what the world is. (laughs) They just are not thinking. They're not fair. You can't just pick one. You got to love the, if you're going to love the world, are you going to, be an advocate for social justice or whatever that is. I even hate that word. It's just God created male and female in what? His image. And the nations are his. If you put those pieces together, it means he loves all races. It means he loves everybody. Not according to any sort of distinction. It doesn't take a brain scientist to figure that out. Doesn't take a degree in social justice to figure that out. The world is delusional. They are in delusion. They've lost their minds. They have. And if you say that, people get uncomfortable, even in the church. Oh, that makes me feel, they lost their mind. I mean, can't we just be a little more loving and. No. They've lost their minds, but Jesus is the answer. Praise the Lord. <laughs> it's like, we can do that. Woo! Right? It's not that hard to, like, just think. This is the Bible. It's got truth in it. You can look at the news and say, that's crazy. This is right. And this is where I'm landing. And you live your life. <laughs> that's called wisdom, by the way. Everything else is foolish. Thomas Brooks says, zeal is like fire in the chimney. Or in the chimney, it is one of the best servants. Listen to this. But out of the chimney, it is one of the the worst masters. Let me read that again. This is good. Zeal is like fire. In the chimney, it is one of the best servants. It's controlled. You can be warmed by it. You could cook something. However... Outside the chimney, outside boundary lines, it is the worst master. It's very wise. You have to have. You cannot just be running around, rampage, and uh, you know, like, and, and think, "Oh, I'm zealous for the Lord." No, you are also stupid. <laughs> because that's what the word says. It's foolish. It's foolish. But you need to be red hot, white hot for the Lord. But controlled and understand, it has to have truth as an anchor. Something the world doesn't understand. But it's hard. It's actually getting harder. And here's the pastoral word: it's very hard. I mean, when I see men and uh, mothers and fathers, and I we homeschool our kids, which that's a choice we've made, and although. I'm so thankful that our governor put a ban on CRT. Isn't everybody thankful for that? That's incredible. That somebody at least has sense. Texas also did the same. I think South Dakota and a few others. But the, the thing is, we decided to do homeschool for a certain reason. Now, we don't push that on anybody else. But it is, in, it is important to teach our kids the truth. But it's hard to watch a lot of these people go to these, if you've watched, this is like a new thing now. uh, Parents are now going into school boards and trying to fight for their kids. I mean, you know, you'd want to fight for your kid as well if this stuff was happening. And it's evil. And what's evil about it is it goes back to Matthew 18, that if you cause a little one to stumble, you're better off putting a millstone around your neck and killing yourself. Because you do not want to meet Jesus that day. <laughs> so these people who are secretaries of education, and they're leading our kids astray, they're in for it. Big time. Because you can't, little kids, they, they can't, they don't know how to, if parents are busy, super busy, and, you know, trying to pay the bills, and, all that, and they're, they send their kid to an ideology school, to learn that math is racist because you now have to actually, you know, one plus one equals two. That's racist because you should never tell a kid anything wrong. What? Really? What in the world's happening? (laughs) But I was educated this way. When I was in college, I actually had, I was under Dewey for education. A lot of you guys remember this, right? Who's education major? You probably heard of Dewey, right? John Dewey. They literally told me, they said, you cannot. This is what I, I remember I was just a Christian probably for a couple of years. And I didn't know. I was just, I mean, I've been in school. I don't know the difference between right truth and not true. I mean, I didn't know any of these ideologies, but I remember something irking me. I was thinking, what in the world? They? they told me, you cannot tell the student that they're wrong. You got to, they they will come up with the answer what I went to Catholic school, and these eighty nine year old ladies told me when I spelled something wrong i 'm thankful for that and then I remember when they tried to change the 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 pen, like to, let's change it to purple, red pen to purple, because red's too harsh on the eyes. So maybe just change it to purple, It'd just to be a little bit more, and then to yellow, and then to, or, what do we, to nothing. <laughs> do you see, I mean, do you see the sheer stupidity in this? So you got, you, you, so here, I'm, here's my point. So when you, when when parents are going to the school board, trying to, defend for the truth because they love their kids and this is a war they're being tossed out they're being silenced shut down isn't it interesting when it's the other way around they're like you silenced me but then when it's like truth actually trying to come in it's like nobody says anything about being silenced you have to understand how backwards everything is I've said this before, that I want a, tr- a church that understands what in the world's actually happening. Not naive people that just sing, you are good, 18 times. But actually understand what, who our God is, what the truth of Scripture is, in order to understand these things, because you'll have kids too. And these kids, they're impressionable. The enemy knows that. Very, Impressionable more than when I had kids, I was I never understood how impressionable kids are until I had them. How influenced they are. That helps me now understand. Oh, when they're in they're being indoctrinated by a religion. By a religion. This is a religion. And no one's saying anything. Shh. Be quiet. No. Sorry. We need to speak. We need to speak truth. We need to defend truth. This is Jesus. This is the way it goes. We need to do this. And when you see parents being kicked out, I mean, they're like, and I don't blame them for being angry and just, but here's the challenge. We cannot lose it. This is pastoral. We cannot lose it. We'll lose our witness. Somehow we have got to be zealous. Zealous in a sense that we've got to continue to fight. We've got to continue to get to Jerusalem. We've got to get, people might say, stay here, stay. I mean, they might hold us back, but we've got to get to the destination that God's called us to. And that's, to, that's truth. Does that make sense? Amen. Because what I understand is when you're in college, you don't think about these things. You're like, because you're being indoctrinated by your own college. You, you, can't, you, you don't think about these things until you're a mom of three or four kids. I mean, you're starting to see them grow up and you're like, man, this actually makes sense. Like, I want them to be around the right babysitters. I want them to be around the right people. I want them to be influenced. I mean, because you, you, you care and you understand that how much work it takes to put in and some stew not is trying to take it out. right? And that's what they're trying to do. You can't, we cannot let that happen. These are our kids. They're our kids. And it matters. You remember, let me remind you how important kids were to Jesus when his disciples were like, let's go to the meeting. Let's go to the revival. Let's go to people that understand this stuff so we could get more of a following. He rebuked the disciples and said, no, no, no. Let those kids come to me. Do you think those kids were influenced? You better believe they were. They were forever changed, being next to Jesus and him blessing them. That is our job, to get them to Jesus. That is our job, to get our kids to Jesus and away from the devil and his ideologies. That is so important. So the next time you say, well, I'm not a... You know, you could take it to an extreme... You know, so many, I've, I've said this from before. I don't have any social media and all that stuff. And I was like, man, just stay off the news and all this. And it is true. Stay off. I think you should. But at the same time, you got to know what's also going on. Because you don't want to be that guy that's like, oh, Jesus, Jesus, just take care of it. It's just fine. Because you don't realize that you're being, you might be, being, or the people you loved might be being taken hostage by people that you don't want to influence your kid or your spouse or your friends or the weak and the vulnerable in this church. You're like, well, I, I can't wait to get past all the defending. You know, all we're doing is defending. We'll get used to it. That's what the church is supposed to do. You're like, all that brings division. So what? There is a division, by the way, good versus evil. And we are on the side of good with Jesus, and we need to defend. I, I care about every person in this room, every child in this room. We want to make sure our kids are safe. Our kids are getting what they need. Our, the spouses are safe. They're getting what they need. The weak and the vulnerable, those outcasts, we want to make sure everybody's good. Amen? And men, you're, that is your job. And in order for you to do that rightfully, you gotta know the truth. You can't be wishy washy. No woman wants a wishy washy man. Nobody does. I don't know a woman on the planet that does, deep down. Nobody wants that. Zeal is a combination of two equally strong emotions love and hate. It produces a strong love that hates anything that would harm its object. The Lord Jesus Christ expressed both aspects of zeal when he cleansed the temple. It was his passionate love for his father's house that caused him to hate the terrible iniquity that desecrated it. Sometimes zeal is less than righteous. Zeal apart from the knowledge can be damning. Zeal without wisdom is dangerous. Zeal mixed with insensitivity is often cruel. Whenever zeal disintegrates into uncontrolled passion, it can be deadly. It is wonderful to have a high regard for truth, but zeal for the truth must be balanced by a love for people. Or it could give way to judgmentalism, harshness, and a lack of compassion, end quote. All right, Paul enters his, it completes a second missionary journey. He's to his third. It's a very, it's a shorter one. In verse 22, 24, we're gonna get to the second characteristic, which is teachable. Apollos is teachable. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit or zealous, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way, explained to him the way of God more accurately and privately. It took him aside. And, and when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he had greatly helped those who had believed through grace for he had power, powerfully refuted the Jews in public demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So I wanna give you a couple characteristics, sub characteristics of Apollos. Number one is he was an eloquent and educated man. Number two, he was mighty in the scriptures. He was discipled, I guess you can say. What have we been talking about for our college mission? What is the vision for college ministry? Is that they would be educated and discipled, right? And they make for a very powerful debater. We need more men and women like that, right? Not wishy-washy emotional Christians, now, we can be emotional as long as it's based in truth. But he was eloquent. He was uh, educated in Alexandria and Egypt. He was also very mighty in the scriptures. He knew them powerfully, and he was, teacher. he was a great teacher. But he was off. And some of us are off. Some of us need a little bit more training. We need a little bit more theological training. We need a little bit more sound doctrine. All of us do, actually. In one sense, right? Some more than others, and that's fine. But he was trained in the way of the Lord, which Genesis 18, 19, so I've chosen him so that he may command his children as his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Psalm 25, 8, 9, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. It's just God's way. It says he leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. And so he knew the way because he was a humble man, he was teachable. Now think about it, a very educated man who is very eloquent in speech, he knew the scriptures, and a, a, a man and his wife come up to him and say, "Hey, look, can we teach you more of the way?" He said, "Sure, no problem. Let's go in private and do that." And you know what, that is important because we don't just rebuke people. Oh, man, you don't know what you're talking about. They just they took him into their house and sat with them and say, "Hey, you can be better." You could even be a more effective teacher if we just give you a little bit more in the tank. That's good discipleship, and that is what a mother and father does. A good mother and father. Now, notice they didn't say, hey, let's teach us, let's, let's teach this guy more about our way. That's happened here. Do not do that. Those guys aren't here anymore. We will have more false teachers in this church, no doubt. But we should be able to pick them off so fast they didn't even know it was coming. Whoa! Yes, that we are that kind of church. But that wasn't. Apollos wasn't a false teacher. He just, he understood John's baptism. He understood the Messiah was coming. He just didn't understand the Messiah fully came and that he was, he resurrected. And man, if if if, uh, uh, Priscilla and Achilles said, man, if this guy could just get this kind of training, boom, he'd be unstoppable. And I'll tell you at the very end, it says he refuted, which actually means to over, the Greek word means to overwhelmingly defeat. It means to crush your opponent in debate. Priscilla and Achilles said, look, if, you could just, if I just can get a little bit of time with this guy, he's going to be unstoppable. And that's what discipleship means at the mother and father level. That's why we need more mothers and fathers to not show them their way, but the way of Christ to help them become godly, men of God, women of God. Do not go near a man or a woman that calls themselves a spiritual father that will influence you according to their way or pointing to themselves or b- drawing people to themselves. Anytime you see someone say, oh, hey, come to me, and they're, they're, they're building you up, building you up, building you up, building you up, and it kind of makes you almost feel like kind of uncomfortable, and where's Jesus in this? Stay away. Stay away. Because they will destroy you in this church. But show me a mother or father that will continually point you to Jesus, into resources, and away from themselves, into the Lord. Like, I don't have anything, but here's what I've learned. Here's what God's given me freedom, freedom. Everybody wants to control everybody these days. But freedom, you'll feel free. You'll feel, oh, I have all these resources. And some people ask me that stuff all the time. Hey, what's a biblical woman? What's a biblical man? What's a biblical this? That? It's like, I just give resources here, take them. I'm not drawing people to my Oh, come to my house and I will show you everything I know. No, because everything I have has been given to me. That's what Paul said. Everything I have has been given. Who am I? Nothing. Okay. All right, here we go. Number three, Old Testament saints. That is the transition. The last transition here. In the Old, uh, in really pretty much the Old Testament, because they didn't consider this the New Testament in that sense, but post-resurrection Jesus, ascension. The third characteristic is faithfulness. And we'll start with verse 1 in chapter 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, "No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit." Now that's a little funny because even Old Testament saints understood the Holy Spirit. Of course, I mean, there's lots of passages in the Old Testament that emphatically says Holy Spirit, but they meant in that sense where you receive the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he said, "Into then into what then were you baptized?" And they said, "Into John's baptism." Now these were Old Testament saints. They weren't believers in that sense. They were not called Christians in the New Testament sense. But you understand that Old Testament believers went to heaven. They were saying Moses, Joshua, I mean, all the, those who believed, and they, a lot of times you'll hear theologians just say right off the bat, those who believed in the Christ to come. Well, Abraham didn't really believe in the Christ. He didn't have that in his vocabulary. Even David was prophesying. He didn't really fully understand what that was. I don't think anybody really did but they trusted God for their salvation and the means of salvation. That's what it meant to be a Christian in the Old Testament. So these were the lingering last group of the four, of the Jews, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and the Old Testament saints. And they said, and they said to him in John's baptism, Paul said, John's baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was, the com- who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men, men in all. So uh, what God, what, what, what's going on here is they, they experienced the exact same thing as the other three groups. They all got the red T-shirt. It's a silly example, but you get the picture. They all became one church. Now I want to just again... Put the nail in the coffin. I want to just finalize this as the last of the book of Acts with this controversial topic. If you just bear with me just for five minutes and we'll be done. But just I want to make this as clear as day and then move on. This you cannot forget that this is a transitionary, there's a transitionary theme in the book of Acts. Okay? We understand that. We've started in August, but it's now May. And we're almost done. About about a month, or or, I'm sorry, about two or three months from now, we'll be done with the book of Acts. But I want to just, I want to give you that that some Christians believe that these men were Christians. In the truest New Testament sense, they were not. Why? I have, there's a few proof, there's a couple of uh, proof texts here. But, and they, people think that that means if they were Christians, then they received a second blessing. I want to be clear, there is no second blessing. There isn't. I, I don't know how else to be clear about that, but there is no baptism in the Holy Spirit as far as a second blessing. Why? Because you either have the Holy Spirit or you don't. You don't get a little bit more. You don't get like 75% of the Holy Spirit and the other 25% floating out in no man's land wondering when you're going to connect the dots. When you're going to bring him home? 1 Corinthians 6:19 says, "Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, believers, whom you have from God, that is not and that you are not your own." In other words, if you become a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit, not a temple of the half Holy Spirit. Not a temple of inadequate Holy Spirit. Do you see the logic here? It just doesn't make sense. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of what? One spirit, not a half a spirit. One spirit. 2 Corinthians, there's no backdoor Christianity, as we often say. If I could just get you on an awakened trip and then we we can move you into the upper echelon of Christianity, we'll be good. Many people will do that And that's not fair to the congregation because God is a fair God and everything is for the taking for every believer in the room. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ephesians one thirteen. In him you also, having listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Understand that if you do not have the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, as it relates here in the in, in the scriptures, you are not saved. Clearly, Romans eight nine says you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He doesn't say, if you have the spirit of Christ, but maybe you, know, then you belong to him, but then also there's another thing that you experience you could have, and then you're really in, and it doesn't, if that was so important, it would have been broken down like that. It's clear. It's clear. Jude 19, these are the ones who cause divisions worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. You don't have it, you're not a believer. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need, the fullness of God, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, you might be thinking, well, John, clearly it says disciples. He says he found some disciples. We have an answer for that. There are disciples... There were the disciples of the Pharisees, disciples of John the Baptist, and there's also disciples of Jesus who were clearly not saved. I'll show you. Mark 2.18, disciples of the Pharisees, 2.18, Mark 2.18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. I told you i will get a little theological on you, but this will help as we move forward. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So you got all three uh, in there. And then also, disciples of John the Baptist, Luke 5 33, and he said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees do the same, but your, your disciples eat and drink. What's the deal? Luke 11 1, Jesus's disciples ask, How do we pray? And then, of course, in John 6 66, this is what he says, As a result of many of Jesus's disciples withdrew, and we're not walking with him anymore. It's pretty clear that you can't just assume disciples mean Christians, but every Christian is a disciple. Does that make sense? Paul asked the disciples if they received the Holy Spirit when you believed, and he kind of wanted to see where they were at. And I think that's important when you, when you get into discipleship or even in uh, discipleship, uh, making disciples in evangelism, it's important to ask questions. And Paul was asking that question. He wasn't assuming anything. He just said, okay, so did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they basically, under, Paul understood that when you believe in Christ, not in John's baptism, when you believe in Christ, you automatically receive the Spirit. Now, we get that from Ephesians 1.13. In him, you also have, after listening to the message of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, having also believed what you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Isn't that clear? You can't get more clear than that, guys. Acts 11.17. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I to stand in God's way? In other words, there is no space between you getting saved, receiving the Holy Spirit, and then you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's no gap. No gap. You can be confident that when you, when you, when, when if you ever, has anyone ever led someone to Jesus? It's a, a wonderful thing. When you get to tell them that they're in the family of God because they've truly repented. You could see it in their eyes. They've accepted Christ. They've received the Holy Spirit. You pray for them. They're in. They're one body. They're a part of our family. You and I are brothers and sisters now. But if you got to tell them, "Hey, there's a there's another thing you got to go through." I got there's there's one more thing, one more hurdle, and then you're really in. That's what the Pentecostals do. And they are wrong. They are wrong. Happy Pentecost. (laughs) They said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And the answer, we were baptized into John's baptism. And if they had believed in Jesus, understand, they would have received Christ. They would have received the Holy Spirit, and they did not. So there it is. So many are confused about this passage. But I hope it's clear today. All right, we're going to close here but I just again I think just it, every time I read this it's just it warms my heart and how unifying God is and how he's such a father and wants everyone to have the same toys he wants everyone to have the same toys he's not trying to say hey this this Christian is more profound because they've they've discovered or happened upon uh, because they were under a better teacher or they were under a better group of people or whatever God just says look everybody gets the same toys and everybody gets the same, same, they're one body. Now people get different gifts, right? Not everybody's a teacher, not everybody's a pastor, I get that. Administrator, all those. But when they laid hands on the Ephesian brothers, this is what happens as one commentator said, the laying of hands should be understood as a special act of fellowship incorporating the people concerned into the fellowship of the church. This was necessary in the case of the Samaritan converts in chapter 8 to make it quite clear that they were accepted fully into the Jewish church centered on Jerusalem. Racism was done. Do you see the profound nature of what God was doing? Enough of this silliness in the church. Every time you, you... what the charismatics do that nerve me is they, they ruin it. They ruin the profound nature of God, the Father, unifying his church. Unifying something, the walls of division. He crushed them that day when Jesus was crushed. And the power of the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost Sunday. It was the unifying glue. It was the unifier. It was no longer the haves and the have-nots. Says here that it was necessary in the present instance to make it clear to these members of the semi Christian group that they were now becoming part of the universal church. That is more profound than anything. And that slaps into the face all this garbage of unifying and anti racism, critical theory, it's silliness. Because God is a unifying God, and if you're part of his family, It is the worst thing in the world that you could look at even a Christian differently. Look at, oh, you don't have the tongue speak? Well, you're just, you're missing out. No, 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 no. You're a different color skin. Well, then I'm treating, you have more money? Well, then by all means, come in the front. What does James say? That is sinful to treat somebody differently because of their wallets or because of their skin color. Because of the spiritual gifts that they might have or have not, you can't get more unifying than this. Holy Spirit came upon them and began speaking in tongues and prophesying, just as in Acts two one through four. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there became they came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, very noticeable, obvious even for those who are sleeping. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them as tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. All is the key word. Acts 8, 14 to 17. With the Samaritans. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who were the officiants, basically, uh, the observers, the witnesses of this new work, Who came down and prayed for them and they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon them and they had simply baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They began laying hands on them just as we had read earlier and they received the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Acts 10, 44 and 48, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on them all were listening to the message, who believed. All circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. That wall division in Ephesians 2 has been crushed. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can we? Or can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ just as these Ephesians believers did. And then they asked them to stay for a few days. And then in Acts 11, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he used to say, John baptized with water, meaning a human baptized with water, preparing the way. Ah, but then God came and he is the only one that can actually give you the Holy Spirit not Benny Hinn, not anybody else. I cannot give anybody the Holy Spirit. I'm not God. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave us also after believing the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that can stand in God's way? We're one church, whether the Jews in Acts two, whether the Samaritans in Acts eight, whether the Gentiles in Acts ten and eleven, are now the Old Testament saints. God saying, "Hey, don't forget about those guys. They're faithful. They're faithful. Bring them in. I also want to give them the same experience. Isn't that amazing? This is this is Christianity, guys." This is true biblical Christianity that gives peace and will strengthen this church from here on out for all the garbage, whether it's from the church world or whether it's from the world itself. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Paul witnessed the last of the groups. This is a very important transition as we move on now to the rest of the Gentile world. As we entered into modern day, everybody who receives Jesus receives his spirit right away. That's it. Now I just want to end with one last verse. Ephesians 4, 4 and 5 There is one body, you can stand for this, the word of God. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And that's how it works. Isn't that beautiful? It's amazing. All this talk about unity, world, this is unity. This is unity. This is true biblical unity. We get to define it, not them. We get to define love. We get to define unity. We alone hold the truth. In a very pluralistic, relativistic world, we hold the truth. And that truth sets us free. That is incredibly offensive, but it's true. So Father,